What do you do to relax? What do you do to switch off? Uh, I, I, I like to paint. Um, oh, I make things. I like to... What do you make? I make... I have a thing where I make models of... I mean, when I was in like, well, Mayor of London, we build a beautiful... I make buses. You make models of buses. I make models of buses. See, they're going to be do, in Downing Street. So, so what I do, no, what I don't make models of buses, but what I, I make is, I get, I get old, um, I don't know, wooden crates. Yeah. Right? And then I paint them. And they, uh, and they have two, two I suppose it's a, wine, it's a box that's been used to contain two, two wine bottles, right? Right. And it will have a, 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 a dividing thing. Yeah, and I turn it into a bus, and I so I put, I put passengers. You really want to know this? You're making, you the, you're making I, buses. I, yeah, you're I making paint, cardboard I, buses. I paint, no, okay, I that's paint, what you do to enjoy yourself. I paint, no, I paint no. the passengers enjoying themselves. Okay, great. On the wonderful bus. Great. Well, welcome back to Michael and us, everyone. Uh, Will and I are recording this a day later than originally planned because for those of you outside of Canada, you may not know, there was basically a nationwide uh, internet failure yesterday. Not strictly nationwide, but basically one of the two big telecom companies, uh, Rogers, went down, which meant not only that uh, inter- the internet wasn't working, uh, it meant that like I couldn't go to the corner store because you know I don't carry cash anymore and all the debit machines run on uh, Rogers internet as well. The country was paralyzed because of this. Yeah, I mean, people make that joke that Canada's just, you know, a few telecoms and oil companies in a trench coat. But, you know, there's definitely some truth to that. Uh, yesterday morning, I was down to like my last little bit of coffee beans in the hopper. And, uh, you know, I made a I made a double espresso and then I dropped it on the floor immediately, like just made the espresso, promptly dropped it on the floor. So it's like, God damn it, there's no internet and I don't have any coffee. So you know, I, I went out and I tried to get some coffee and then, of course, was immediately thwarted by all the debit machines going down. Whatever. I mean, there's places that sell coffee. You know, I hadn't had coffee yet, so I wasn't really thinking. <laughs> I wasn't My brain wasn't really working uh, properly. And of course, yes, uh, couldn't buy coffee at Starbucks either. Couldn't do the podcast, uh, but I did enjoy watching uh, the movie. Well, we'll get to that shortly. But yes, uh, the reason we couldn't do the podcast in person is because I'm broadcasting to you from beautiful New York City, New York. The city's so nice they named it twice. I'm here for a few days, and listeners will be interested to know that yesterday I visited Bubba Gump Shrimp Company in Times Square. That is the chain restaurant, the seafood chain restaurant inspired by the movie Forrest Gump. And I didn't go because of the podcast. I went because Bubba Gump Shrimp Company is by far my favorite uh, shitty Times Square chain restaurant. I've been going there for, God, 10 years, 15 years off and on. And it is a full on Forrest Gump themed restaurant. I mean, they've got pictures of Forrest all over the wall, you know, Forrest Gump paraphernalia. When you when you line up to be seated, there's a sign on the ground that says stop Forrest, stop. At the entrance upstairs, there's a little display case where you can see actual call sheets from the making of Forrest Gump and storyboards. You can see Tom Hanks's costume from the scene where he's running across America. And my absolute favorite thing that I saw at the entrance, there's a certificate. It shows a bit of a flag and it says, this is to certify that this flag of the United States of America was flown in a United States Air Force C-17 Globemaster aircraft on Operation Enduring Freedom by the 455th Expeditionary Aeromedical Evacuation Squadron in honor of Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. 
So both Forrest Gump <laughs> and the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company in Times Square are proud veterans of the military. So support the troops. Check out Bubba Gump Shrimp Company in Times Square next time you're in town as my highest recommendation. So, sir, I'm still letting that wash over me a bit. There's a certificate uh, in this establishment that is there to demonstrate that this flag that's in the restaurant like flew in a particular aircraft over Iraq? Uh, Afghanistan, in fact. Operation Enduring Freedom in honor of the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. So this is not just any restaurant. This isn't this isn't just any movie tie-in restaurant in Times Square. No, no, no. This restaurant was fighting for our freedom. I mean, it's a real it's a real testament to just how jingoistic everything was after 9-11 that you could make the Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. Like this is this is what bin Laden was setting out to destroy. <laughs> Anyway, this whole experience with uh, with Rogers, you know, which if you if you live in many parts of Canada, it's basically one of two choices uh, in terms of, you know, who's going to supply your Internet and, you know, for many people, your phone service as well. I mean, there are there are other options, but these two companies, Rogers and Bell, have, you know, such a large market share and are, you know, are kept with such a large market share because of various regulations and things like that. You know, there's, I think, wide, pretty widespread recognition uh, that having two companies have such a large market share is a problem. But of course, for many people, uh, the solution is just deregulate things and have more market competition. So have more of these shitty private companies that you can uh, you can deal with. I do like the idea of uh, trust busting, uh, monopoly busting in relation to Rogers and Bell. But I also uh, am a fan of public enterprise. And uh, what was happening yesterday definitely got me thinking again that it would be a good idea to have some kind of you know public company in Canada, Crown Corporation, some sort of uh, state-owned enterprise for internet services and, and other things. And actually, uh, Canada does have something like this. Um, I don't think it uh, is involved in provision of the the internet. Although actually, I think it's involved in uh, various communication services, telephone, uh, mobile networks, broadband as well. And that's Sasktel. So this is in the province of Saskatchewan. Um, I think the company is older, but it was nationalized by the CCF uh, socialist government of uh, Tommy Douglas in 1947 and uh, serves, I think, more than a million customers today. This company uh, has been so popular. Uh, the service it's provided has been so popular that about five or six years ago, the right-wing government of Saskatchewan under Brad Wall tried to privatize it. And um, I think less than a year later, back down on that effort because it was just going nowhere. Like many public companies that, you know, the right targets for privatization, it just wasn't viable because the uh, the service was, uh, was so popular and the company was so popular. So obviously, since the 1980s, there's been a zeal for privatization everywhere. And there's been, as part of that, uh, a really, really ferocious attack on the idea that, you know, the state can actually, you know, effectively manage anything, can manage public services. Privatizing these sorts of companies, you know, this happened in Canada too with uh, with Petro Canada. Uh, in Britain, it was you know absolutely integral to the Thatcherite project. Um, more recently, there was the privatization of Royal Mail, and these privatizations have been an absolute disaster. I don't know if anybody listening has ever taken uh, tr- or tried to take the train in Britain, but the Tory government of John Major privatized British Rail, and I mean, taking the train uh, anywhere in Britain, even for a short distance, is just an ordeal. 
You have all these different private companies who own different uh, parts of the track. They're competing with each other in a sense, so they don't have an integrated schedules. So you have to like consult multiple websites uh, in order to find out how to get places if you have to take different trains owned by different companies. It's incredibly expensive because you sometimes have to pay multiple fares. Uh, the last time I was in Britain, I was staying with some family, less than a 30 minute train ride outside of London. And uh, every day I was spending the equivalent of probably like a hundred US dollars just to come in and out of London on this, I don't know, 25 minute train ride. Absolutely absurd. Uh, some things are just uh, better treated as utilities and are more efficient when they're managed by the state. I mean, it doesn't mean that it's going to make money, but uh, some things aren't meant to make money. Uh, some things are actually meant to operate at a loss. And because you can't have private companies that own bits of the rail line fail, guess who has to bail them out when uh, you know they're not competitive? You end up having the state uh, subsidize inefficiency of these private companies anyway. Some public enterprises actually are pretty efficient and profitable as well. I know Royal Mail was uh, making a profit when the Tory government privatized it. Anyway, this is all to say that it's long past time we uh, brought back this idea. For telecommunications, you'd have to think about you know how best to do it, but it's just absurd that we don't treat something like the internet, which as we saw when basically throughout much of Canada, you know, business ground to a halt, work ground to a halt. Um, we should treat something like that, as, you know, in the same way that we treat like roads or water or the electricity grid. It's obviously uh, just as integral. And the idea that uh, some kind of public company or crown corporation that fulfilled that function would be any more of a pain in the ass to deal with uh, than Rogers or Bell is uh, is ridiculous because anybody who's ever called the customer service departments of those places knows that they're giant Kafka-esque nightmares to deal with. I remember once trying to get my internet upgraded and I called, uh, I talked to various people at Rogers and they all gave me completely different offers and pricing systems for what was available. So it was impossible to tell tell, uh, you know, what the actual options were. So then I went to a, a Rogers store in person and they gave me a completely different set of options. The idea that having something, you know, in the private domain as opposed to the public domain automatically means you get some kind of like sleek, streamlined service. Uh, it's bullshit. Before we get to the movie, there's one more news item that I'd like to pick Luke's brain about. Uh, the situation in the United Kingdom. It seems they are currently without a prime minister. Uh, what is happening and why, despite great expectations, did Boris Johnson not perform uh, as well as you and I both hoped? <laughs> well, uh, they're not technically without a prime minister because, uh, you know, the compromise... No, no, they, they're, they're without a prime minister. It's like a chicken with its head off right now over <laughs> there. That's what I've heard. <laughs> well, Johnson, uh, you know, who is absolutely desperate to hang on at all costs, appears to be... I mean, he's trying to basically remain as a caretaker prime minister for three months. 
um, or something like that. We'll we'll see if that actually holds. I mean, I think there are going to be continued efforts to get rid of him. Um, I think that's how keen the Tory party is to discard him at this point. And uh, the Tories have this kind of shadowy group called the 1922 Committee, which is the body that manages leadership elections and, and the ejection of, uh, of leaders as well. So I imagine there may be some more uh, machinations there to push him out. But I mean, look, yeah, it's been, uh, you know, just at the level of spectacle, a pretty amazing thing to watch. I don't think other political systems or, you know, political systems like the US system can really deliver this particular kind of political intrigue. It's so particular to Westminster style uh, parliamentary systems where individual caucuses, you know, members of parliament have so much power um, and can just eject a leader on the spot. I mean, it's why, you know, countries like Australia or uh, the UK have had so many different prime ministers just in the last, you know, 10 years or so, because they do have these mechanisms by which an unpopular leader or just a leader that the uh, parliamentary grouping doesn't like can be removed. So, you know, all of it was pretty funny. Uh, Johnson's determination to hang on, you know, at all costs led to some pretty funny things happening. Like, I don't know if you saw, like he had to go to prime minister's questions and just get absolutely berated, including by his own backbenchers. And then he had to go off to this uh, committee uh, where he was just getting absolutely grilled by uh, MPs from various parties. And Sky News had this ticker at the top of their broadcast where uh, you could see the number of resignations from his government and it was growing as he was at the committee. So unbeknownst to Johnson, there were more and more people resigning from cabinet as he was uh, testifying at this committee. You had the resignation, meanwhile, of all of these ministers, uh, who some of whom had only been ministers for like a day or two. I think there was, it might have been uh, the education secretary. There were two of them in the span of two days as he just, you know, went further and further down the list because there were fewer and fewer people who wanted to actually be in cabinet or were willing to be in cabinet. The whole thing was hilarious. And I mean, it made for great TV. And there was this, uh, there was this one moment where uh, some Tory spokesman, I think he, I think he's a cabinet minister. I'm forgetting his name. Kind of looks like Jeremy Hunt, but I don't think it is Jeremy Hunt. All these guys look the same. He was speaking to Sky News outside of Westminster. Uh, By this point, the uh, number of government resignations had ticked up to almost 60. And so he's just spewing these dumb talking points to the media. And uh, I guess uh, Hugh Grant had earlier tweeted a request to people, to the people who are outside Westminster, to blare the Benny Hill theme from their loudspeakers. So as this guy's trying to talk, you just have the Benny Hill theme playing in the background uh, it made for absolutely incredible TV well I think there are a couple of things firstly we need to make sure that we keep the basic functions of government going uh, that's really important there are for example uh, no ministers in DfE at the moment that needs to be sorted out uh, secondly I think we need to try and select a new leader as quickly as we reasonably can. More seriously, though, I mean, I think that the case of Johnson is is interesting. The case of Johnson's failure is interesting because in a few different senses, I think really it was a kind of failed attempt to adapt Trumpism for the British context. I mean, I think from the beginning, you know, Johnson's success in many ways had to do with his capacity to or, or, or purported capacity to rebrand himself and the Tory party as kind of anti-establishment. 
which was, you know, something that was really required if the Tory party was going to hang on because they're facing this serious challenge from the left, but also because they'd been in power for such a long time. And, you know, George Osborne and David Cameron in particular had presided over, you know, all of these brutal cuts, this uh, project of austerity, wages had completely stagnated. A lot of what the Tories were doing was uh, was unpopular and, uh, you know, people were feeling it. So, so Brexit uh, was something that people like Boris Johnson figured out could be used to reabsorb some of the uh, energy and some of the votes that had gone to things like UKIP, but also to rebrand, you know, the Tories as the ruling party of the UK with this kind of patina of, you know, anti-establishmentism or whatever. And so in 2019, you know, that worked. Johnson won this big majority government. I mean, I think there were other reasons for it, but Brexit, I think, is really the key to understanding why Johnson succeeded as he as he did in that election, also why the Labour project under Corbyn was, uh, was defeated. Part of Johnson's quasi-Trumpist appeal, of course, has to do with just uh, his personality, right? He's a, he's a clown. Probably the best thing I ever read about Boris Johnson was uh, published by Richard Seymour on his blog, which people can find on Patreon. But this was around the time of the Partygate scandal when, when, when that started breaking. And I mean, the thing that ultimately toppled Johnson was, I think, more the straw that broke the camel's back. I think is more symptomatic of a political collapse that has really been months in the making. But in some ways, uh, the thing that really instigated it uh, was this Partygate scandal, where it emerged that as Britain was under a really serious and stringent lockdown, you know, Number Ten Downing Street was, shall we say, not really playing by the the rules that it was uh, it was setting for other people. So back in January, uh, Richard Seymour wrote. The reason the Johnson administration is in trouble is not because it had a number of piss-ups, it's because it couldn't democratize the hedonism. The politics of pleasure is essential to the new right. Johnson's appeal, though nationalized, greatest place on earth, was built on a specific type of capitalist hedonism. He could, quote, bring us sunshine because he was seen as a fellow who had a good time. Farage plays a similar game. That's Nigel Farage, the former leader of UKIP. He's refuted to be a ladies' man who likes long, boozy lunches, enjoys a smoke, and isn't too politically correct to laugh up a racist gag. There is, of course, a generational aspect to this. Boomer journalists who move to the right, I'm thinking of Birchall, Cohen, and Hitchens, love their naughty flaunting. Nonetheless, it goes way beyond this. Trump was fond of Epstein parties, leering at his own daughter and grabbing pussies. Bolsonaro, building his base on evangelicals, the military, and ranchers, tends to find his pleasures more in the transgression of killing, rape jokes, and racism. Climate denialism is frequently predicated on the idea of leftist killjoys sucking the fun out of life with their war on lethal cars. We can ascribe some of this to a social Darwinist ethic in which the weak are killed off, but it only makes the rugged stronger. And incidentally, in Boris Johnson's resignation speech outside of Number 10 Downing Street the other day, he specifically talked about how the Tory party had a Darwinian system for choosing their leaders, which I thought was pretty striking. Seymour continues, plenty of evidence for that in right-wing leaders' strongman responses to infection. But social Darwinism just ontologizes the breathless, creative, destructive excitement of capitalism. As Bolsonaro put it earlier in the pandemic, I'm sorry, some people will die. They will die. That's life. You can't stop a car factory because of traffic deaths. When he says that's life, he's saying that the enjoyment of life means accepting death, impurity, and tragedy, and nonetheless gleefully embracing the enjoyment of creative destruction. And this wouldn't appeal to millions of people who have everything to lose from it if it didn't contain a participatory appeal. You can also have enjoyment. That's what right-wing freedom politics amounts to. 
To reiterate what I said before, had Johnson been able in some way to democratize the hedonism that was enjoyed in the gardens of Downing Street, it would not have provoked this malicious egalitarianism, this resentment from Tory voters against an elite hoarding all the fun. And that's why right of Tory parties have far more of a chance of galvanizing them, even if the left avoids being conscripted into the centrist politics of pearl clutching, which can so easily be turned against the poor in the interest of exploiting Tory chaos. Um, anyway, I think that is a, a very good point from Richard Seymour. The problem isn't so much what Boris Johnson did, and you know he's had a number of scandals in this, uh, you know, in a similar vein. The problem is that you know he wasn't able, as Trump was able to, to you know, as uh, Richard Seymour put it, uh, democratize the excitement, democratize the hedonism. I think just in a in a really straightforward sense as well, you know, the Tory party can replace Boris Johnson. Uh, he is just so unpopular at this point, there's really no point keeping him on. The fact is, uh, there's in all likelihood a summer of strikes coming, and he's just too much of a liability because of how unpopular he's become. In terms of who's going to replace him, it's kind of an interesting question, I suppose. I don't really think it's in question, you know, what kind of political program is going to follow from this. It's going to be some combination of, I don't know, uh, Thatcherism and transphobia, basically, you know, tax cuts and culture war. I think the only question is really uh, in what proportions those things come. Uh, I've heard various Tory leadership candidates, uh, you know, they've already released videos and kind of uh, statements uh, launching their leadership campaigns. And tax cuts seem to be something they're all talking about, uh, I mean, as if there haven't been tax cuts for like the last 40 years. Something that I think is going to be a major theme because there are all these strikes coming up is this kind of uh, resuscitated version of Thatcherism because, of course, so much of the project of Thatcherism and so much of kind of the mythology of Thatcherism has to do with, you know, well, we stood up to the miners, we, uh, we stood up to the unions. And it's interesting because the, uh, you know, the parallels to the 1970s, which uh, so many Tories are, uh, are attempting to draw at this point, and, you know, w- which has been a theme of, I think, a lot of the media coverage of the RMT strike uh, as well, some of those parallels actually do exist. There was significant inflation in Britain in the 1970s. You know, there was a cost of uh, living crisis. Living standards were being squeezed. Um, a lot of it had to do with, uh, with energy as well, which is a part of, uh, you know, the global economic situation uh, currently as well. The big difference, or one of the big differences, uh, let's say, uh, is that in the early 1970s uh, and in the late 1970s, there actually was a squeeze on profitability as well. You know, companies weren't making profits. Capital was not reaping returns. There was actually a deeper crisis of British capitalism at that time. Right now, profits are, are great in, in Britain and elsewhere. It's living standards and wages that are being squeezed. A lot of these strikes that are happening, including the RMT strike, are really just about trying to make sure that wages at at the very least keep up with inflation because people are being offered these wage settlements where it's like, hey, you get a 7% raise. Well, if inflation is at 9%, that's actually a pay cut. So I expect to see uh, a lot of these kind of uh, old idioms of Thatcherism mobilized again or resuscitated again in relation to all of this. But I don't think that they're going to have the same appeal at all. And I think the next few months in British politics could be really interesting for that reason. I just wish amidst it all, there was a real opposition. Let me have your attention for a moment. Put that coffee down. Let's talk about something important. Because we're adding a little something to this month's sales contest. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. You want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. 
just stand up and strike back. Somebody yeah. should do something to them. The hell exists on this earth? Yes. What can you do? I gotta tell you, I'm ready to do the Dutch. I know what I'll do. I'll go out and rob everybody blind and go to Argentina. You think you're a thief? We're just talking. We are? Yeah, we're just speaking about it. Speaking about it is an idea. We're not actually talking about it. No. It's a robbery. This is another Superdelegate episode. Our Superdelegate Patreon tier has, uh, in, in our, our usual flawed democracy. Yes, yeah, so Michael and us podcast, much like uh, Britain in America, is also a managed democracy. Uh, minority Rule has brought us the James Foley directed adaptation of David Mamet's Pulitzer winning play, Glengarry Glen Ross. And I'm very glad it did because I love this movie. I've seen this movie many times over the years. It is hugely watchable. Luke saw it for the very first time. I've actually been badgering Luke for a long time to watch it. So I'm glad <laughs> he could finally have an excuse. <laughs> well, it's funny. Uh, we, were, we were talking about uh, before about, you know, democratizing the pleasures of enjoyment and creative destruction. <laughs> and in many ways, that's the project of this movie. I was just waiting for that text that I knew I was going to get from Luke saying this movie's fucking great. And I got it. Uh, there are a number of reasons why a plurality of our patrons might have chosen this movie. Most obvious just being that, you know, it, it's really good and people like it. Another being that David Mamet has emerged as a bit of a culture war figure in recent years. Uh, he was a classic 9-11 Republican type. His coming out moment was in 2008 when he wrote an essay called Why I Am No Longer a Brain-Dead Liberal. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he had a massive conversion to the right. At the moment, seems to be right-wing on virtually every issue. He was recently in the news because he was on Fox News speaking in support of the Florida House bill, the Don't Say Gay bill. He had a quote that was widely circulated where he said, and I quote, Teachers are inclined, particularly men, because men are predators to pedophilia, unquote. So that's the level of brain that we're dealing with right now. And David Mamet is somebody who I've been sort of a casual fan of for most of my adult life. Glengarry Glenn Ross is my favorite, but he's done lots of other things that are good. But there's always been a streak in David Mamet. There's always been a particular reactionary streak. I remember going to see a production of his play, Oleana. I don't know if you've heard about it, Luke, but it's a two-hander a play about sexual harassment where the two characters are a professor and his student. And it's a three-act play, and essentially what it boils down to is a spurious charge of sexual harassment from the student towards the professor that ends up destroying his life. It was written in 1992 from a very different era of the culture war, but like, you know, David Mamet's the same guy. My, my right? man like, already had cancel culture on the brain. And a couple years ago, in, I think it was 2013, well after his right-wing conversion, Mamet made this TV movie called Phil Spector, starring Al Pacino as Phil Spector, that is like a bullet in my brain. It's one of the most noxious things that I think has ever been created in any art media. It's like pure evil and is fascinating to watch just, just for that, because basically the thesis of it is that Phil Spector is innocent. And, and that if he's not innocent, then, well, she basically had it coming, and, and it was okay for him to do it because he's a great artist. It's all about the trial and the lead-up to it, and it sort of presents Phil Spector as this guy who, you know, he was off in his own little world, he's, he's been famous for too long, and he, he doesn't quite understand the reality of this media culture that would, that would vilify an eccentric artist in this day and age on, with, with no evidence, with no evidence— 
And obviously, I think they had to put a disclaimer up in front of it to sort of say that it was a work of fiction, because obviously it ignores the multitudinous evidence pointing to Phil Spector's guilt. But, you know, it's so noxious and evil that it actually included video of his his murder victim's audition tape, you know, her doing kind of like a not very funny sketch. It, it included the actual audition video and has people laughing at it, basically as if to say, oh, look at this, look at this broad, look at this dumb broad that was basically riding on this guy's coattails into the grave and beyond. So Mamet has become, uh, now we're going to get to talking about how good Glengarry Glen Ross is. (laughs) Mamet has become a very, you know, toxic and strange figure. uh, And there was always a very toxic and strange streak running through his art. I'm I'm not sure if we're going to find it in Glengarry Glen Ross, which I think is a pretty uncomplicated, Complicatedly great movie. Well, uh, I am great. interested in the question of why this movie has been requested by our listeners so much. Because I, I mean, I can't, I can't believe, given some of the things that you know they've made us watch thus far, that the reason this one came up so much was just because they wanted us to have a good time. I mean, there has to be an actual, uh, there has to be an actual reason, and I can't really put my finger on uh, what it is. Well, in addition to Mammoth as a culture war figure, it's a play and movie that asks us to sort of. Of sympathize with the plight of these like predatory salesmen, these real estate scam artists who are trying to scam ordinary people out of their hard-earned money. It's like these guys are the failed wolf of Wall Street. And to some extent, it's a cast full of Willie Lomans, and we're all supposed to kind of feel for them, which which we do, by the way. I, I would imagine there's something in that that our listeners are responding to. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the wolf of Wall Street a lot uh, while watching Glengarry Glenn Ross. Although, of course, the big difference and one of the, you know, one of the real charms of the film is that the real estate company that they're working at, which is the main setting for the movie, I mean, it's just, it could just be any like shitty little company. There's like, I don't know, four desks and a sort of main office. It's, it's, there's nothing uh, glamorous about it. I guess the implication is that maybe a few people who've come from through this pipeline um, have, have done pretty well. But I mean, part of what I think defines this movie is that what's ultimately at stake uh, seems to be a pretty sort of everyday level of, uh, of extreme wealth. It's not, you know, a Jordan Belfort level of wealth. You know, the, none of these guys is going to end up owning multiple yachts, you know, that have helicopter pads on top of them or anything. The prize for the best salesman, uh, you know, is going to be a Cadillac. And I guess the one character has, a, you know, maybe it's the Alec Baldwin character has a really expensive watch or something like that. But but all of that is just sort of, uh, you know, off in the distance for, for a lot of these guys. Like a, a lot of them really are just people who are being pushy with customers over the phone, being manipulative, being dishonest, uh, because they're trying to earn a living. I mean, that's, you know, how they how they all think of it. And the character who's the heart of the story, Sheldon the Machine Levine, played by Jack Lemmon, is somebody who, like, in his interactions with his potential customers, the power dynamic seems very skewed. Like, he's begging his marks to be marks for him because he's got a daughter in the hospital (laughs) who he desperately needs to support. Like, he's barely keeping his head above water. And hilariously, one of the tactics he he keeps using again and again, um, which I guess seems to be common uh, among all of these guys, is that he pretends that he's, you know, in town, wherever they are. He's He's in town, but only for a day, you know, 
he's he's always in town for a really short amount of time. While he's actually calling from a payphone, he's barking orders about you know his first class plane tickets and his uh, you know presidential suite hotel room or whatever. Uh, you know he's barking that to an imagined secretary you know in earshot or whatever. When really you know he's often calling from you know not even his office but like a, a telephone booth on a shitty street uh, in the rain or something like that. So it's just constantly underscoring how uh, pathetic a uh, figure he is. Well, what was this in reference? Uh... Uh, well, I spoke to your wife earlier on the phone. I called. I'm in town with Rio Rancho. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. She said you had some sort of some award. Yes, I was speaking to the people in my sales organization, uh-huh. my representatives in this area. Right. Now, Mr. Spannell, they... your name is Larry. Do you mind if I call you Larry? Huh? <laughs> right, Larry. We had a consultant. And he made me an offer. <laughs> he made me an offer. He offered me two hundred and thirty thousand dollars to promote a sales plan. You see, a plan to present our investment opportunities at Rio Rancho to the public. Well, I said, hell, let me save you the two hundred and thirty, and pass the savings along to the investors. So, a little bit about the plot. The main characters are employees of this middling to failing real estate firm <laughs> in a bad part of town. They've all been given their marching orders. They're all in competition for who can sell the most this month. First prize is a Cadillac. Second prize, set of steak knives. Third prize, you're fired. Okay? Third prize, you're fired. That's what Alec Baldwin, as the man from downtown, tells them. Our heroes are, as I said, Jack Lemon as Shelley the Machine Levine, a once legendary figure in the city's real estate world. A mentor figure for so many of them but someone who has lost it. And I think Jack Lemmon in this movie is absolutely unbelievable. He just really nails the affect of a salesman who was probably once very good at this, but has become very ossified, whether it's because he's from a different time and the sort of patter, the lines that he's using, the affect he's doing probably worked maybe in the 1960s, but they don't work in the early 1990s anymore. Whether it's just because you age out of it at a certain point, you you become a more pathetic, figure as you get older just nature does that to you it might also be i mean just speculating here but that this model of selling real estate where you're kind of cold calling people i mean that that uh certainly to me seemed pretty retrograde so it's also i i suspect that he's he's in what's now uh, become a failing enterprise not that real estate is a failing enterprise but this method of selling it seems to be his great mentee though is ricky roma played by al pacino who is the current machine of the office an absolute master of the craft and you know al pacino in this movie peak of his game just batting a thousand in this movie we first see him when he's talking up a potential mark played by jonathan price at a bar and he's just giving this incredible stream of consciousness monologue that's all about like kind of building him up and then negging him and then building him up and negging him just working his confidence in such a way that eventually he's going to get him to ignore his wife and be a man and sign up for this deal and uh, this scene is really interesting because uh, it's kind of taking place, you know, most of the events of the film, uh, particularly at the beginning, take place within the office itself. This is happening at a bar. And initially, at least, uh, I guess you've seen the movie before, so you knew who these characters were. But I didn't really know uh, exactly what their relationship to the rest of this world was. And I think that in this scene, you know, Al Pacino's character is really providing, uh, if you will, the sort of metaphysics of, uh, of the movie. He's ranting to the guy and just sort of gushing machismo. But he's also mad the case for just greed and amoralism in a godless universe. He says stuff like, All train compartments smell vaguely of shit. It gets so you don't mind it. 
that's the worst thing that I can confess. You know how long it took me to get there? A long time. When you die, you're going to regret the things you don't do. You think you're queer? I'm going to tell you something. We're all queer. You think you're a thief? So what? You get befuddled by a middle-class morality? Get shut of it. Shut it out. You cheat on your wife? You did it. Live with it. Fuck little girls? So be it. There's an absolute morality? Huh? Maybe. And then what? If you think there is, go ahead, be that thing. Bad people go to hell? I don't think so. You think that? Act that way. Hell exists on Earth? Yes. I won't live in it. That's me. So I think, uh, you know, in addition to providing, as I just put it, you know, the metaphysics of the movie, this makes the Al Pacino character uh, an important counterpoint to Jack Lemmon's character because Jack Lemmon's character is clearly very tired. You know, he's uh, he's he's having a crisis of confidence, whereas, you know, Al Pacino clearly believes in this stuff. You know, he's he's a he's a true ideologue of his <laughs> occupation and his vocation. He's somebody who uh, quite passionately believes and has convinced himself that greed is actually a virtue and that there's really no alternative more desirable than making lots of money and being as selfish as possible. And existing somewhere between these two characters are the other main salesmen of the film, Alan Arkin as George Arano and Ed Harris as Dave Moss, two workaday journeyman salesmen at the office. All of them are struggling with the horrible leads they've been given. And all of them know that in the office of uh, everyone's favorite actor, Kevin Spacey, in in the main (laughs) office of the firm, exists a file of the coveted Glengarry leads, the really good leads. They're off harassing deadbeats, but potentially there can be great sales made. So Ed Harris hatches a plan to rob the office, and he gets Alan Arkin in on the plan in a sneaky, underhanded way that even if Arkin refuses, he could essentially paint him as an accomplice. The second half of the film deals with the office actually has been raided. There are a couple of suspects that it may be. The the true villain eventually reveals himself. And the other main drama of the second half of the film is that in his hour of need, Shelley Levine does make a sale. He makes an incredible sale that revitalizes him, makes him a man again, has Ricky Roma, his one-time mentee, patting him on the back like a proud father. But did he actually make the sale? I wouldn't dream of spoiling the surprise ending of the film. even though we do that all the time there's an incredible scene where uh, he goes to somebody's house I mean he's so desperate to make a sale that he just goes to this guy's house he's had no contact um, with the guy before except that he's you know badgered his wife once on the phone like clearly this couple and they just seem to be you know a fairly uh, normal maybe you know slightly well to do middle class couple but I mean hardly candidates for investing in real estate in a major way they've clearly given out their phone number or signed up to some list, you know, a year or two earlier, and had just constantly been badgered by uh, various people, including Jack Lemon. And Lemon is still trying to maintain this ruse, basically, of, oh, I'm I'm just in town on business. You know, I was, I was on my way to the airport, and I thought I'd uh, stop, stop off here and just check with your wife on that, that thing we discussed. You know, this movie is so unbelievably funny. And I mean, this scene is an example, because Jack Lemon uh, is so pathetic, just in being a really pushy sales 
salesman who elbows his way in. Um, and then as the guy is clearly rejecting him and saying, like, I have to go pick up my wife now, actually, so I can't talk. And then he's saying, oh, that's fine. I'll get in the car with you. I'll come along with you. And then he's <laughs> and then the guy's saying, well, you know, we actually have to go to her relatives after. And he's saying, oh, that's great. Well, I can pitch this amazing opportunity to them as well. It's so darkly funny, among other things, because it's so pathetic. And I noticed that the actor in the scene, uh, whose name uh, currently escapes me, people may also remember him from the White Caps episode of The Sopranos, uh, where amusingly he's also involved in a real estate deal with Tony Soprano, and in that context is uh, is himself the sleaze when it comes to selling real estate. Anyway, the film has many funny scenes, but uh, I think that that one might have been the highlight for me. But you know, you're right when you identify that speech by Pacino or Ricky Roma as the metaphysics of the film and i think clearly the soul of the film is in this relationship between the lemon and the pacino characters i really don't think that what mamet is saying is that uh there was once a a great age of salesmen you know an age when salesmen were a different kind of salesman and they've been replaced by this gordon gecko kind of salesman that pacino represents i don't think he's saying that i mean i think the implication is that lemon was once pacino but for various reasons, he's aged out of it or he's lost the touch. But clearly what's happening is that Lemon has become a victim of this system that the Pacino character celebrates. You know, Pacino is proudly amoral. He has no qualms about this kind of sink or swim world that he lives in. And in fact, he he gets off on it. That choreographed dance towards the end when Price is in the office and he's doing every maneuver he can do to keep Price's name on the dotted line. He gets off on the challenge of that. But Lemon has a daughter in the hospital and he can't pay for her. You know, he, he is very much a victim of this absolutely barbaric system that society has erected. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, the, the original play, which I think debuted in 1984, I mean, that's that's the height of the Reagan era. And I think that's very significant because Ricky Roma and Blake, who uh, was played by Alec Baldwin, who appears, I think, only in you know one scene. And in fact, he's not in the original play, believe it or not. That was a scene that was written for the movie. That's interesting. I, I didn't know that. But so, you know, when he shows up, um, you know, he has another monologue, which again, I think states uh, quite plainly the, the morality of this universe. I've been in this business 15 years what's your name fuck you that's my name (laughs) you know why mister because you drove a hyundai to get here tonight i drove an eighty thousand dollar bmw that's my name and your name is your wanting and you can't play in the man's game you can't close them then go home and tell your wife your troubles because only one thing counts in this life get them to sign on the line which is dotted a, B, C. A, always, B, B, C, closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. By the way, back when I took a modern drama course in university, one of the plays was Glengarry Glen Ross, and I had a great night one night, you know, because you have to read it. I had a great night just being alone in my apartment reading the play out loud to myself, you know. Just angrily sh- screaming expletives and homophobic slurs. <laughs> Doing my shitty Jack Lemon and Al Pacino <laughs> impressions. <laughs> Anyway, I think this uh, I think this that monologue is interesting, uh, given the context of the play, given that it does come out in the Reagan era. Because I do think one thing that's distinctive about the Reagan era in particular is there is a pretty open and explicit embrace, I think, of the ethos that greed is good and that, you know, self-destruction, to reiterate a theme from earlier in the episode, is actually creative. It's not just as, you know, uh, we kind of get from uh, the Pacino character's monologue that we live in a godless universe and you just have to take care of yourself and, and seek 
comfort and wealth and riches and all that stuff because living in a godless universe gives you no other choice. It's actually uh, in some ways even worse than that. It's that doing that is actually good. Morality and ethics do exist and morality is just a selfish morality. Greed is a virtue. I think that was uh, in some ways quite distinct in the Reagan era, at least in terms of how explicitly it was embraced as an idea. I think earlier phases of American capitalism, uh, particularly since the Second World War, had at least outwardly uh, justified themselves through ideas of class compromise, you know, through the idea that, you know, okay, well, yes, maybe people uh, make profits, but private companies and, and individuals making profits, you know, that's actually good for everyone. That has social benefits and that kind of thing. And I know Reaganism had this idea of trickle-down economics, which is maybe uh, something of an analogous idea to that. But I do think it embraced the idea more potently than it had ever really been embraced before, at least since the 19th century, that greed and acquisitiveness are actually a virtue. And that conversely, people who fail, people who suffer, people who are poor, I mean, they, they, they really deserve it. You know, that's actually just the laws of the universe playing out. Again, to throw back to the conversation off the top, I mean, it really was a kind of socially Darwinian ethic that was embraced. I think the movie uh, captures that pretty well. The other thing that for me was uh, really effective about the movie, I mean, I guess this is the second of my two rather didactic readings of it, is that the whole time, uh, what are they really competing for? What's really at stake in all of this, in this competition where, you know, the winner gets a Cadillac, the second place guy gets a, a set of steak knives and everybody underneath gets fired, right? I mean, they're competing to be the top salesman, but what they're really competing for is access to the leads, right? How many times in this movie do you hear somebody say, well, give me the good leads? Well, where are the good leads and you know the central uh you know the central event of act two is is the theft of these leads as if you will a metaphor for how capitalism actually works and how markets actually work i think glenn gary glenn ross is pretty incredible because the whole thing right from you know the instigating event of the movie where alec baldwin comes in and says okay you're all going to be you're all going to compete to be the top salesman there's this kind of phony aura of meritocracy to everything but uh the people who succeed are the ones that have the good leads and that's exactly how capitalism actually works in practice, right? On the one hand, there's this pretense that it's all a meritocracy. We're all, you know, market actors who are competing. We have different skills and attributes that lead to various returns for each of us based on how socially useful they are, how much uh, hard work we put in, etc. But the people who, who are actually rich, right, the people who actually wield economic power uh, in our society are people who own property, right? They're not so much people who own wealth as people who own assets that allow for the generation of further wealth. And real estate is the perfect, uh, you know, stand-in for that because real estate is, in a sense, property itself. Landlords and people who own real estate don't provide any kind of useful function, although, you know, the landlord lobby has tried to rebrand them as housing providers. You're not supposed to say landlord anymore anymore because it's uh, it's pejorative and mean but landlords just own bits of paper which allow them to extract rents and in a big way that's what uh, this whole universe is about there's this fraudulent meritocracy but what all of the competition and and machismo and bluster is really about is just rising to the top uh, so that you can stay there because you get the good leads in conclusion glengarry glenn ross has perfect politics now please if you encounter david mamet do not ask him about any social issues <laughs>
walking my 